This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today I am speaking with Cynthia Kaufman. Cynthia was with us last year and was talking about her new book, The Sea is Rising and So Are We. This year, we're going to be talking about her new book, which we'll tell you about in a second, but let me just remind everyone about Cynthia. She is the director of the Vasconcelos Institute for Democracy in Action at De Anza College, where she runs and teaches in a community organizer training program. She's been active in a wide variety of social justice movements, including Central American Solidarity, Union Organizing, Police Accountability, and recently Tenants' Rights and Climate Change. Cynthia, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Okay, so now we are going to talk about this new book, Consumerism, Sustainability, and Happiness. Uh, and the, the subtitle is? How to Build a World Where Everyone Has Enough. Okay, I'm really looking forward to an answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Cynthia, tell, tell us about the book and how you came to start writing it. Sure. Yeah, I got started on writing this book because I started thinking about how deep consumerism is and how much it is everywhere around us. And, and that question of like, is it even possible to have a sustainable world given how much people are driven to just buy and use stuff and have more and bigger houses and more yeah. big and bigger stuff all the time. So that's kind of what motivated me to write the book. And, you know, a lot of my books start with me really wondering about something and then doing a deep dive into all the different aspects of that question and then sharing my answer. Right. So that's kind of what this book is. Okay. So what's the answer? <laughs> okay. All right. So it's not an easy answer, but but here's a couple things I want to say. So so uh, the book starts with sort of looking at at poverty, sustainability, and happiness. So mm. if you think about poverty, you know m most of us who are you know even mildly progressive know that there's plenty in the world for everybody, right? So that's just like the most basic starting point is that there is enough in this world for everybody to have a really decent life. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really, really honestly, the question for that is about taxing the rich and distributing the spoils, because really that it's like it's a very simple problem. I'm not saying it's politically easy, but it's intellectually simple. People who talk about poverty, that's the answer. But the thing about consumerism, you know, one of the things that that I found as I was reading about this is how the sort of consumer treadmill that people are on where you just have this feeling of emptiness inside of you and you need to kind of keep getting more and more stuff and striving for more and more to fill that empty void in you. And of course, you know, the people who do work on happiness show two really important things. One important thing is that it's not the case, surprise, surprise, that having more stuff makes you happy. Like right. that's not the case. But if you live in a stratified society, you're always going to feel like you need to have more because you're always looking upwards. And so therefore, one of the most important things for solving the problem of kind of consumer avariciousness really is in solving the problem of inequality. So, you know, and you solve the problem of inequality, again, easy to say, easy to conceptualize, hard to do is about really, really taxing the rich. Right. And so, and one of the, there's been all these studies and now they've got like, you know, the um, cortisol, we have cortisol in our body as a marker of stress. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you find is the higher the level of inequality in a society, the higher levels of cortisol, even in the rich. Oh, interesting. 
So because they because they realize they realize the circumstance they're actually in. That's exactly right. Oh, fascinating. It, yeah, no. So it's so the 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 cortisol studies on happiness are really really interesting. Wow. Okay. So we have the social stratification. It's it's built in. I mean, right. consumerism and uh, this. Uh, well, let me back up. Uh huh. I propose to you that humans have a natural desire to strive for more. And I have on occasion said that humans are innately greedy, which is a reason why we are such a successful species. So how do we, and, and if you can agree or, or not, and I'll be interested to hear yeah. what you say, <laughs> how do we deal with some of these innate drives that we have and also counter the the drive to be dominant over yeah yeah so you pose that question really well and i'm going to say i mostly disagree with you on it and i think it's a it's a core core question kind of in this in this whole subject so you know if you look at the anthropological literature i would say that you know humans human beings want to be we're social creatures. We want to be thought of well, but that doesn't, if you want to be thought of well in your society, every society has different ways to be thought of well, mm -hmm. and that doesn't necessarily require greed or domination. And you'll see all kinds of like, um, you know, one example I like in thinking about this is, is the potlatch in the Northwestern part of indigenous societies in, in what's now the U.S. and Canada, which is that one of the ways those societies functioned was to have some people who were higher status people, but those higher status people, part of their social responsibility was to give stuff away, mm -hmm. right? So the idea that having a high status means accumulating more stuff is just not, I think, borne out by the anthropological literature. That's what I would say. But we live in a particular society, and I would say capitalist modernity that's been around for about 500 years, yeah. that, 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 that does say, like, you know, whoever dies with the most toys wins, right? Like, why does Elon Musk want more money? Like, th there's no logic to it. I don't think that that's, like, inherent in our humanity. But, we're, but we live in a society with a particular game set up by a particular set of rules. And if you're in the top... You want to be on that Forbes top 10 list. You just do, or top 100 or whatever that list is. You know what I mean? So that, that um, so, and then also um, there's these sort of stories we tell ourselves in a society, you know, about what it means to be a good person, what it means to be a successful person. And again, before capitalist modernity, you know, we had stories like, like the King Midas story, right? The person who's so greedy that they turned everything around them to gold, you know, which is like, why would a story tell, why would a society tell that story? That story exists to say, watch it. If you, if you start getting too greedy and that little avariciousness thing goes crazy, it's going to, it's going to undermine you. Whereas uh -huh. we've all been raised in a society with the stories that say, you know, poor people are poor because they're lazy, uh, that, you know, um, that uh, that rich people are full of virtue. They're the, the ones who produce like, you know, for the society. So there's all these stories that are part of society, our current society. And also I have a huge section in the book on economics. There's also the whole discipline of economics is structured to encourage us to believe those things which are false. Mm. Okay. Uh, which, which, I mean, I was kind of getting at too, we're sort of programmed into this. 
uh, from the get-go. We were programmed into this, right? And that there are people who who are programmed to, you know, it's like this way that that sort of corporate greed becomes almost sociopathic. Like it just becomes a thing that feeds on itself, even if nobody wants it, you know, but like, like, you know, if you're the head of Exxon, you're going to keep trying to destroy the climate. And then if you said, wait, maybe we should do something different. They're going to throw you out and put somebody else in there because the thing becomes a machine. So we're all sort of programmed into that machine. Right. So what's the way out of the machine? What's the way out of the machine? Okay. First step is know you're in a machine, right? So right. The first step is coming out of the denial. So that's so my sense is that that one really important piece of this is for all of us to understand the untruth of those things, mm-hmm. to to kind of put ourselves in almost like culture cultural spaces where we're not around people for whom you know social success means having a bigger and bigger house and all that sort of thing. That's the kind of personal side of it, right? And, and kind of like, you know, learning new paradigms of economics that that teach us different things. But then on a policy level, which is what the book, is, I, I think, is like really the biggest, most important answer. We have to fight for taxing the rich really severely. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's possible. I really do. I think it's sort of becoming on the agenda. So, and also, so for, should, we, should yeah. we say taxing them fairly or severely the right word? <laughs> Well, what is, well, okay, can I just throw this since you're like dialoguing? Sure. Like, what would you say is fairly? What's fair? How much money is it fair to have? Um, well, ex- exactly. I, my, my point is, if, if we say it's severe, it's already negative. Oh, we okay, it, fair enough. Okay, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So, um, you know, uh, when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were running for president, they both had these really powerful uh, like policy proposals for taxing the rich. And I think they were both really solid. And yes, mm-hmm. sure. I'm not, you're, you're right. That's much better s- fair, uh, fairly. But when I say fairly, you do have to ask the question, what is fair? And one of Bernie Sanders points that I thought was very powerful, like you start with Elizabeth Warren and she says, look, we can, we can tax these folks enough to solve all of our kind of social poverty problems without them even feeling it. Right. Then Bernie Sanders says we can do that. But actually, you shouldn't have billionaires when you have billionaires. And so so Sanders says we need to tax them so strongly that we end up actually eliminating the billionaire class. And I actually think that that's right, because it's not just that we need their money for social goods. It's that we need them to not have the kind of impact they have on politics, but also as the kind of happiness literature shows also the impact that their very existence has on kind of like our social norms and sense of togetherness in society. Because basically they're still oligarchs uh, if they're, if they're in that position and they can look back and say, yeah, look, I solved all your problems and that's why I'm great. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's right. And don't worry about that man behind the the curtain. Let me just do things the way I want. Just let me keep doing what I'm doing. Right. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Great conversations from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right hand corner to become an active, sustaining member of Radio Free Galisteo.
The other right. thing I wanted to say too, so there's the sort of, there's the, uh, well, let's say ambitious and fair. How about that? It's some word, ambitious yeah. and fair taxation of, of the very wealthy. And then there's the idea of sort of creating public goods too. So if you think about it in, in a society where you've got uh, a starved public sector, terrible public schools, terrible public transportation, everybody's needing to kind of compete and thrive to survive, right? But if you have, um, you know, my, one of my favorite examples is, really solid, great public transportation to the point that people don't need cars. Cars are incredibly wasteful, terrible for the climate, lead to social isolation, and they're real status symbols, right? Mm -hmm. So you end up with a situation where everybody can get around with equality. So the rich and the poor both can use the, you know, the bus, the train, the metro, whatever. Um, it, it It's then a, a status leveler and it makes it so that you don't need to be rich to survive. So that's part of the idea of public goods too is, if I don't need to worry about whether or not my kids can go to college because college is, you know, relatively free for everybody and accessible to everybody, then I'm not grinding away at a job and trying to compete with other people to just for my basic existence. Right. And, and yeah, I, I, uh, I know people that literally are working until their kids are through school and then, then I can retire unless something else comes up. Right, right. Yeah, no, it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't, right? There are many countries in this world where higher education is free. So when you when you brought that up, I started thinking about, uh, I think it was Carnegie put libraries in all over the country. I mean, I, I, I was a beneficiary uh, of that myself in uh, upstate New York. My uh, hometown had uh, these Carnegie funded uh, libraries and we had a main one. And then there were these little sub ones that were in, in the communities around. And I mean, I, I spent a ton of time in that library. Uh, now he, he did not level himself. <laughs> certainly. No, he did not. And right. And that's an example of sort of philanthropy leading to public goods. I, by the way, also once I lived in, in a little town in Massachusetts that had, I had a view of one, just a gorgeous little library that was one of those. Yeah, no, they were beautiful, but why can't we use public funds to build beautiful things like that? Right. You know, in other words, again, if you, if you don't have a starved public sector so that you're, that you're, um, taxing the wealthy enough that there's plenty to go around for everybody. We can build beautiful libraries everywhere right. so that, yeah, so that everybody has access to all of those things. So I think those things are really crucially important is, 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 um, is really strong public goods. Okay. Where is this happening or is it happening anywhere? Where is this happening or is it happening? Well, look, most of the Scandinavian countries have done some version of this, right? You know, again, with, with very strong levels of taxation on the wealthy and a really, really strong uh, social safety net. Uh, so, so there are a lot, and then, so that's on the sort of the, the, the high-end wealthy version of this. And then you think about the, the opposite extreme is Bhutan, right? Which is always uh, the ha people who study happiness. It's, it's, it's a really interesting case because tiny little country, literally $200 per capita GDP. Hmm. And one of the happiest places on earth because they have a really thriving social fabric, right? Mm -hmm. Where people have what they need because they count on each other. So those are sort of two extremes. And then, then again, when you read the sort of uh, international happiness stats, Costa Rica is a super interesting case too, where it's a country that has 
much lower carbon footprint than the U.S., much lower GDP, and yet roughly the same levels of happiness. Hmm. Hmm. And again, and it's a country that spends almost nothing on the military. I think they don't have a military, with, but they've got... Um, uh, a public good good public education system and a strong public health system and that sort of thing. So kind of the things that take the stress off off of your life, they've made those a priority in a country without very much money. Huh. Okay. So those are some examples of where. Yeah. Now let's think about the political environment that we live in in the United States. Yeah. Wow. Right. Okay. Is it so a long road saying, or or what's well, yeah, going to happen? Okay. Yeah. So look, so we are living in the most consequential part of human history because of the climate crisis. Okay. So either we're going to do it or we're going to be like really, really messed over. So what I would say, you know, so I wrote my last book, which was just basically like, get on board, get working on the climate crisis. That's what we have to do. We need to have to have climate justice. So, um, and and I think that and I think the climate crisis is going to force a huge number of changes rather quickly. And so we are we're at a crucible moment in world history, and especially in this country, which is unfortunately one of the most important places in the world because of our social and political impact, militarism, and just the size of our country. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, one of the things that I think is exciting and positive is in the last couple election cycles, you've seen that. You know, here's the way I would kind of lay out the map. You've got the corporate Democrats who basically say, give business everything they want, try not to upset wealthy people, and, uh, you know, let's not talk about re redistribution, and um, and people don't trust them, right? And that's part of what I think led to the sort of the right-wing, you know, sort of fake populist slash fascist kind of thing that we're seeing in the Republican Party at this point is, you know, people feeling like I don't trust the system and they're all lying and they're all ripping us off. That's like that, that, that like is fertile ground for fascism to grow in. Sure. And then you've got the progressive Democrats and the progressive movement in general, which is saying, let's talk about redistribution. Let's talk about like reining in corporate power. Let's talk about regulating uh, businesses and the public interest. Let's talk about public goods and they're winning. Right. So I think when you, when you frame it in these kind of ways and say, let's have a better world for everybody by making sure everybody has their needs taken care of. Let's try to figure out how to get all the incredible levels of stress that people are dealing with off their backs and let's have government serve those interests. You actually win. So whereas like if you asked me that question 15 years ago, I would have said, I think I believe that probably if we, it might. And now it's just like, it's been proven. I mean, it's really been proven that that kind of a progressive message wins elections when you organize. We've got one coming up next year. We do. In fact, it is super consequential. It is it, super consequential, it, you know, it, it, and really we all, you know, I mean, I write books as a sort of a hobby in my spare time, but in fact, we all need to just be out there organizing. We know what we need to do. We know what the messages are that 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 win for people. It's good messaging, but it's also just like ridiculous amounts of organizing. Let me ask you this. This is a, this this is a bit of a tangent, but it's it's relative to what you just said. There has now been brought into the into our election cycles this uncertainty about the validity of the actual elections. So yeah. how, do, how do you deal with 
an electorate, a chunk of the electorate that says no matter who won, it was a ripoff. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I think that there are ways that people who want to believe those things will probably believe those things. And that right now in our country, I think there's about 30% of the country who Steve Phillips in his new book on, on the, the current civil war, it's a really good book. And one of the things he argues is that there are a lot of people in this country where if you ask them to choose between white supremacy and democracy, they're going to choose white supremacy. Yeah. And that's about 30% of this country. That's about right. 30% of this country. And my feeling is that um, it's only 30% of the country, right? The fact that it's 30% of the country on a moral level is horrifying, but it's only 30% of the country, which means it doesn't win elections. You need 50 to win an election. Right. So my sense is, is that it's about building a new majority with people of color, low-income people, young people who tend to vote in lower numbers and getting them voted, get voting, getting them inspired, and just ignore the BS that's happening on the other side and hope that they tear each other to pieces. Yeah, well, I'm, they, they do seem to have uh, a proclivity for that. Uh, <laughs> yes, so. they do. I mean, we can't count on that. We have to keep organizing as hard as we can, but but they do seem to have a proclivity for that. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so uh, as, as we're winding up, what is something that you really want uh, people to take away from this book? I want them to take away from this book the idea that we can have a sustainable society. So I didn't talk about that, but one of the things I talk about a lot in the early part of the book is sustainability is possible. Sustainability is possible. We can all live happy, comfortable, like joyous lives and not ruin the planet. That is completely possible. The problem is a political problem. It's not a problem of human nature. It's not a problem of there's too many of us. It's a problem of of politics and, and political problems. We know how to solve them. So I just want anybody listening to this to, to get involved in trying to, to, to bring that, that, um, that new world into existence. I think that's a great message. And, and I, I will, uh, vouch for a chunk of that anyway i lived on a farm in italy for for a couple of years and it uh it was it was completely sustainable you know you uh, yeah. you, you fed the animals grain the animals gave their uh, finished product after eating it uh, which was then spread out onto the uh, fields which grew the grain which fed the animals and you know it, and, yeah. and also grew food for for everyone else so yeah. it it is, uh, and I just remember remarking on how what a, what a complete uh, circle uh, it made in terms yeah. of sustainability. Uh, so yeah, I don't think I'm saying we should all go back to a, an, an agrarian uh, society, but well, and in fact, that's part of what I'm saying. So I just finished reading uh, Mark Jacobson's book, um, "No Miracles Needed." He's a he's a, um, a an engineer, basically, sort of an energy engineer, and he basically breaks it down bit by bit to show that no, we don't need to be too hot in the summer, too cold in the winter. We can live in cities. We can have machines, right? So, so the. Um, because there are some people who think that we do have to go back to that agrarian society. I think for people who want that, it's fabulous and it's a really interesting, wonderful existence. But the fact is, we don't we don't need to be uncomfortable to be sustainable, I guess is what I want to say. But we do need to stop being wasteful, avaricious, greedy, irresponsible, all those kind of things. Oh, uh, yeah. And th th there's the rub. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, people who think they have to be greedy, like they're actually not doing very well and it doesn't make you happy. So that's that's part of the message too. 
Yeah, yeah, finding happiness. Yeah. Um, that's a very good message indeed. Okay, well, Cynthia, thanks for, uh, for joining us again. And um, we'll, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on this book. I will make sure there's a link to the book in the, in the podcast so that people can go and access it directly. Awesome, thanks, I really appreciate it. Really appreciate you having me on. You're most welcome. And for Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon.